Job 25 and 26 this morning. We'll work our way through and uh, we find ourselves really in the third or at the end of the third cycle of speeches. Those, those cycles uh, very simply were Job's three friends, uh, miserable counselors, uh, and then Job's responses to them. We, this is the last one and the, the third friend Zophar doesn't even speak again. And so we have Bildad this morning and then uh, it's kind of interesting the way the book works at this point. Job responds to that, and then um, Job kind of gives several chapters of defense of his integrity and kind of his summations before we hear from a young guy that at some point has shown up here in the, in the story, uh, never previously introduced. And then God starts speaking. And so that's kind of where it's headed next, but we're at the end of these cycles of speeches that we've kind of gotten used to. Uh, counselors say horrible things. Job responds uh, out of deep, deep pain. I want to start this morning by inviting you to think about power and power dynamics. Um, we can think of power in a number of different ways. I remember, and most of you know that I'm a car guy. I love cars. I love fast cars. I love powerful cars. Um, I think electric cars are an abomination, but that's, that's okay. Um, uh, it, it, it should chug loudly, have a hard time idling, and do the quarter mile in under 10. That's just my personal bent. But, uh, so I've always loved cars. As a, as a kid growing up, my dad had a, had a Falcon we would drive around in, and it was a lot of fun. And I thought I'd been in a lot of powerful cars. Um, was my, one of my bosses, when I did drywall for a while, he drag raced, and so he had a 1,500 uh, horsepower Vega uh, that he would race at the drag strip. He'd won a couple of different races, quite a few races actually. Uh, and then my uncle uh, bought a 33 Ford kit car, so it's all fiberglass. And he put a Chevy 350 in it. Um, and he took me for a ride. And so there's no weight in this car at all. I mean, it's nothing but fiberglass. And I haven't been scared that much in a car uh, until I went to Guatemala and thought I was going to die on the roads. Um, it was so fast. It was so uh, squirrely loose when he would go down, when he would step on the gas, it would catch rubber in every gear. And I'd never been exposed to that kind of power. And I thought, oh, this is, this is the epitome. And then I went to an NHRA drag race. And you go to an NHRA drag race and the vibration from the engines, it's called a sympathetic vibration. You can be sitting literally a quarter mile away from these cars and they are so loud. There's so much power when they rev their engines, your physical body shakes. Uh, you can't stop it. It's not a nervous reaction. It's just sympathetic vibration. Power. And so when we think about power, we think about powerful things and, and how it increases and how we're exposed to it on different levels, that really becomes in large part the crux of what we're going to be looking at this morning. It's, it's all about power, God's power. And I'm told that this is somehow not connected. So let's try this because it will help you, I believe. There. Is it working? Great. There we go. And so the big takeaway this morning is going to be simply this. If God's power can shake the world, it can rescue me from my suffering. And this is really what Job's hope is, even in the face of, of struggling and fighting to believe this truth, because it, it doesn't feel true in so many ways to him. And I think we all can understand that concept of when we're having to fight to believe something that doesn't feel that way to us. And to be ruled by truth instead of sense or feel or whatever, 
And in Matthew 9 that Darren read this morning, we find that moment where, where Jesus is with this paralytic. His friends bring him. It's recorded in three of the four Gospels. Friends bring the guy. He's paralyzed. He can't walk. Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders got angry, right? The scribes, they get mad. They get irritated. Who is he to forgive sins? And then Jesus says that incredible phrase, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. And the funny thing is, we know theologically, it's much harder to say your sins are forgiven. But we know physically, when we think of power, like anybody can say your sins are Any false teacher can say that. And so then to prove power, Jesus says to him, rise and walk. Well, what was the greater display of power in that moment? Well, in our, in our physical senses and our thoughts, we're like, oh, healing somebody from being paralyzed. That's, that's what's powerful. And yet we know theologically, biblically, that's not the greatest power in that moment. And so how we process and think about power and exposure to power and, and how it affects us spiritually and how it impacts our daily suffering and the griefs of our lives is what's going on in this text this morning. And, and so Job is going to argue to this point that he's struggling and fighting to believe because it doesn't feel like it. But if God's power can shake the world, then it can absolutely rescue me from my suffering. So I don't know what you're suffering this morning physical, emotional, relational, financial, um, confusion in your mind, depression, angst, anxiety. I don't know. But I know that God is calling us into a walk of faith and trust in him that he can do that work. And so we, we can unpack it this way. We'll spend some time here in chapter 25. This is Bildad's speech. Bildad says some things that are obviously true. He says a lot of things that are really, really wrong. And so we really see that Bildad's going to make this argument about power, and he's probably playing a little bit off of what Eliphaz, what we saw last week, where it was about power, how does God use his power, and, and they've kind of arrived at this point where God's this impersonal God, that, that he has the system, do good, get good, do bad, get bad, and so he just uses his power, and so he's not out to get you, Job, that's just the way it is. And so we can look at the text, we can see it in the first three verses here, where Bildad says this, then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? And so he points out God's power in three ways. It's pretty obvious, pretty simple. He says, first, it's his dominion. In other words, God rules over all things. God does everything that he pleases to do. Nothing happens out of the sovereign power of God. Psalm 115.3 that you may be familiar with, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Bildad is right here. God exercises dominion. That's actually part of Job's struggle. For God to be sovereign, God to be powerful, how am I suffering this way? Why is God doing this to me? And so Bildad's saying God is over all. He's in dominion over all. We would agree with Bildad here. But secondarily, Bildad emphasizes God's physically over everything. When he says in verse 2 there that God is in the high heaven, and in verse 3, that God's light shines and rises on everything and anything. It's this physical kind of manifestation. It's, it's an Orwellian 1984, he sees all, the all-seeing eye of God. Physically, his presence is such a way that he is everywhere. You cannot ever run from his presence. No, no matter how deep you go, no matter how far you travel, you can't get away from what God sees. I remember growing up as a child doing things, and it felt like my mom and dad had eyes in the back of their head. They knew, and, and now as a parent, I realize it's because it's they knew me and they know human nature. But God really does see everything, and, and sometimes that's a rich comfort to us. God sees where I'm at and he knows what's going on. 
In other times, though, it's astoundingly difficult for us. In Psalm 139, David is reflecting about how he feels hemmed in and hedged in, and he can't get away from God. He actually feels trapped by God. Have you ever felt trapped by God? You want out of this, and you know God is over it, and he sees it, but it feels like he must not because I can't even get away. And Psalm 139, whether he goes to the highest heavens or the lowest lows, he can't escape the all-seeing, all-knowing presence of God. What, what Bill is actually arguing here is that God is omnipotent and he's omniscient. That's his power. But then thirdly, Bildad emphasizes God's power in creation. And he does that when he asks, is there any number to his armies? There's nothing he can't overcome. Uh, he is the conquering general. He is the conquering king. No one can wage war against him. No one can fight against him. And, and honestly, it's a thinly veiled shot at Job because Job's been arguing and debating towards God this whole time. Job, totally righteous, totally blameless. This is puzzling pain in the sense that Job has done nothing to earn his suffering, nothing wrong to, do, to, to get this. And so his argument has been, I don't deserve this. And guess what? God actually agrees that Job doesn't deserve this. He said that in chapters 1 and 2. And so Bildad's kind of saying, why would you fight against him? It's not like you can win. Bildad is no atheist. He sees God as this immortal personal being who can exercise his will at any time and any way that he so chooses. Frankly, this is something that every one of us who knows Christ, who's saved, already agrees with. And at the same time, it shows a real progression in the debate of the book of Job. And it, so all along, it's been like, if God is all-powerful and if God loves Job, then why is all this happening? Now, Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the trifecta, they've been remarkably consistent in, in their view. Yes, God is powerful, and yes, God all, is all-knowing. So, Job, you're suffering because you deserve it. I don't really have a lot of sympathy for you because you're getting what you deserve. You earned this. You did bad. You get bad. They've never wavered from that. Now, in one sense, Job's response also has never wavered. He's never wavered from defending himself. I don't deserve this. this I haven't earned this. But we have seen progression in Job. We have seen shifts in Job. As anyone who is suffering and working through the confusion and the pain changes. It's changing him. There's no way around it. It's changing his perspective. It's changing his view. By this point, the question is not really, is God powerful? But why is God using his power in this way? The friends of Job have gotten irritated with him. Why are you making it personal? You have all these crime movies out there where a common phrase is, it's not personal, it's just business. That's kind of their view of Job at this point. Job, it's not personal. You did a wrong thing, you suffered wrong, get over it. What is your problem? As though that that's a compassionate right response to someone that even is suffering for doing wrong. Which it isn't, just to be clear. But that's the perspective of Job. It's hard to have sympathy for someone that, you, that is hurting and you feel like they've brought this hurt on them. And so what they've done now is they've removed God's power from kind of a personal relationship. And, and so it's a little bit like God just sits in heaven and he's like the worst mathematician ever in the sense that he doesn't really care, but you do something, one plus one equals two. Sin plus unrepentance equals losing all your kids. 
is the way the theology would work. Taking money from people that you shouldn't and abusing widows and orphans equals God's judgment, equals you lose everything you have. Embezzling money equals boils and skin disease and feeling like you're dying and ridicule and mockery. That's the way they think. And so they're looking at Job and their constant opinion is, why are you whining about all 10 of your children dying, your wife abandoning you, sitting here in boils, losing all of your possessions, all your respect? Why are you whining about it? Start doing the right things and you'll be blessed. This is actually very little for, different from Buddhism or yin-yang kind of theory or karma. And unfortunately, I'm actually convinced that a lot of people who claim Jesus have lots more in common with Buddhism, Shintoism, uh, karmic beliefs, and yin-yang than they do with the Bible. If I put in good, I'll get out good. And then they get mad when they don't get good. And so Job's friends, the way they've dealt with it is they've said, Job, quit asking, does God love you? God just is God. Boy, that's a comfort, right? And so he's distanced this, and what is your big deal? And so then Bildad moves on from that, though. And what, Job, what Bildad does is he puts on satanic glasses through which he sees Job. You ever put on different color lenses? When I go shooting, I put on these shooting glasses. They're yellow lenses. Everything looks yellow, right? You, you put on lenses. And so he's got these lenses on, and the viewpoint that he has of, of Job is incredibly satanic. Now, the person of Satan, the afflictor, the, the accuser, we don't see him in person again after the first few chapters. But, but as we've studied through Job, you see his ideas, his values, his, his philosophy, come out of these three friends all the time. And there was even this nightmarish vision that Eliphaz interpreted to be an angel. But as we studied through it, we, we could tell he didn't have a vision of an angel. He had a vision of a demon. And so he's operating off of that. And so, and so their operation, Satan is actually all through the book. It's kind of like when you read through Esther and the name of God isn't there, but he's, all, he's on every page. The name of Satan isn't throughout Job, but he's on every page. Afflicting and afflicting and afflicting. And so Bildad's perspective starts creeping out of him, and it's a satanic perspective. So we pick up and we read through the rest of the, his chapter, verses 4, 5, and 6. How then, how then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm? So God has this system that he's operating. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. Well, what about the fact that everyone's bad already? I mean, like, that's the truth. We know this from Romans. All of sin come short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous, no, not one. There is none that seek after God. From both Romans quoting Isaiah. And so we, we agree. You're, you're right. Humanity is bad. And so how does Bildad filter through that? Well, how are Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar sitting there without the pain that Job's suffering? But Job is suffering. If it's do bad, get bad, but we're all bad, how do we think about this? How do we process through this? And so what he does is he reaches all the way back to something that Eliphaz, the oldest guy, had said way back in chapter 15. And way back in chapter 15, Eliphaz said this in verses 15 and 16. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, 
a man who drinks injustice like water. This is what Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar are doing. They are comparing humanity with angelic beings. And that's actually where he's going when he's talking about the moon and the stars. He's semi-quoting what his older friend already said way back in chapter 15. And so when he's thinking about God's power and humanity's sinfulness, where he goes is even think about angelic beings, how that they are not right before God. He then uses this language that God is a, that man is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. How can anyone be pure who's been born of a woman? The contrast is how can humanity be right when God is not even happy with his angels and none of them were born of a woman and none of them are like a worm or a maggot. They're so much better than humanity. This is not Bildad coming up with this on the own. This is Satan's perspective of God's relationship. It is his irritation that God would love humanity. It's the anger and resentment of Satan who despises humanity, who does, wants nothing more than to kill, steal, and destroy. This is the stuff of nightmares for Job in the midst of his suffering. It's really saying you're right to be in pain. You deserve it. If God can't be happy with the angels, he for sure isn't happy with you. Ironically, though, in Isaiah, which is a dual prophecy, both with the king of Tyre, but also he is telling us about the fall of Satan. Look at how Satan is described. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and the worms are your covers. This is role reversal. The reality is that God isn't displeased with his heavenly beings. He was displeased with Satan and the demons. The reality is, is God is not angry at the angels. The reality is that God is not sitting in his throne, throne room irritated at them. The reality is not that God looks at humanity and refuses to have some personal relationship with them because we are so far from him. But the reality is God desperately and deeply and passionately loves humanity, even in our sinfulness. In your sinfulness, he loves you. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He chases us. He pursues us. He seeks to rescue us, redeem us. He seeks to bring us into his family and adopt us as sons and daughters. He seeks to make us joint heirs with Christ. He calls to us nonstop. It is Satan's perspective of how dare God love humanity. How dare he? You are nothing. You are like worms. You are like maggots. You are less than human. This isn't, this isn't Bildad, the wonderful theologian. This is Satan speaking his ideas through this man. Worse than that, and I would remind you this, Bildad was a believer. And you find that out when you get all the way to the end of the book and God calls him repentance, there's immediate repentance, there's warped theology, and, and I'll be honest with you, I think lots of Christians walk around thinking they're doing the ministry of Jesus, but they actually speak the words of Satan into the lives of the hurting. They don't bring right comfort, they don't bring right theology, they don't bring right truth. They tell them things will just do this and things will be better. It's not personal. It's business. It's just the way it works. If you'll do X, you'll get Y. The reality is that's not how God relates to us. 
And the system simply isn't that simplistic. Bildad is right in understanding that God rules through order. The reality is, as we've learned through the book of Job, that it is not opposed to Galatians 6 that you reap what you sow. It's not opposed to that at all. But it's also pointing out the reality to us that the life we live is not wrapped up in tidy, neat little bows in a perfect system. And people suffer who don't deserve to suffer. Christians suffer, and they haven't earned it. Not every suffering you go through is because God is chastening you or scourging you, Hebrews 12. Not everything you and I experience, we've earned. There are pains that you and I will go through in our lives. There is suffering you and I will experience in our lives. And we're not saying we're pure and we're holy and we're sinless, but there are pains and there's suffering that we didn't deserve and we have not earned. And yet that gives us hope because guess what? It points forward for Job and backwards for us to the one who suffered who deserved none of it. But he suffered for us. The problem is if you go to such a tight system that the only people suffering ever, they've earned it, they deserve it somehow. Other false religions explain it in a multitude of ways, right? You are experiencing this now because of something you must have done. Or the Jews in Jesus' day, something your parents did. Or uh, you go to Eastern religions because of a past life. And the reality, though, is that we will encounter people in our life and if our bent is constantly, constantly be trying to look for, well, what did they do wrong that they're suffering, suffering this way? We wound, we afflict, we are terrible, terrible, terrible counselors. We're not loving, compassionate, or tender towards them. And we create a theology that, frankly, is a false theology that only hurts instead of heals. But if God's power can shake the world, Rescue me from my suffering. So Job hears what Bildad says. And Job begins to process through it. And he begins to ask that question, well, how is God really using his power? And is it really this impersonal? Is it really this distant? Is it really this removed? Is it really this unkind? How do I think about it? And so we can turn to Job's response in chapter 26. And it's one of his briefer responses, to be honest with you. And so what Job's going to think about then is if God is the God of order, Bildad had that right, God has set up an orderly system and uh, surely what goes up comes down and, and we have all these uh, rules, we, we, the world is governed by rules, we'd have no science if there weren't rules. But Job has come to understand, but there's a lot of things that seem to defy the system. Bad people don't always get punished right away. In fact, it feels like most bad people get away with it. And good people suffer when they don't deserve it. So that alone, Job knows, something's, something's not right with the system. I agree that God is the God of order, but is God also the God of confusion? In other words, is he over that? And, and how does he work through that? And so we come to chapter 26, and we can really break it down into four sections broadly. First is one through four. He's sarcastic about it. And then he asks a question. Uh, verses five through 10, he talks about how God exercises power over the confusing parts of creation itself. In other words, Bildad, quit acting like you know it all. There's stuff we don't know. And then verses 11 through 12, how does God deal with the confusion of evil in this world? If, if God is perfect and God is glorious and God is powerful, then why are we suffering these things and why do terrible things happen and how does God deal with that? And all that will drive him to a final question over salvation in verse 13. Verses 1 through 4, let me read those to you. And Job's going to be pretty salty here, right? He's, he's kind of irritable about this and he's really kind of sarcastic. 
Job answered and said, how have you helped him who has no power? <laughs> um, how you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? And Job's saying the opposite, right? That's what sarcasm does, is it says the opposite. It'd be like me saying, I am so glad, and Darren and I planned to be twinsies today. <laughs> sarcasm, right? It's fine. It's no big deal. It's just funny, right? But sarcasm. So Job's saying, you've done nothing to strengthen the weak. You've not done nothing to give wisdom to the foolish. You've done nothing to comfort the hurting. You've done none of that. And so where has all this speaking come from? And, and even that is sarcastic because essentially what, he, what his friends have argued is we're bringing you the word of God. And what Job is saying, this is not from God. I can tell this isn't from God because it's not true. It doesn't heal, it doesn't strengthen, doesn't draw me closer to him. I can tell it's not true. It's wrong, it's wrong. But we already know the answer to that. Where, whose breath is this and where is this coming from? Well, we just looked at it. It's actually satanic. Job is sitting here debating with his friends, but it's actually like he's debating with the enemy of God himself. And so Job says, all right, well, then let's talk about power. Let's talk about power over the confusing things of creation. Verse 5, the dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. Abaddon means destruction or a place of destruction. Sheol was their concept of what hell must be like. So he's really saying, what happens when you die? He stretches out the north. Sheol is naked before God. In other words, he reveals that Abaddon has no covering. So we don't know, but God knows. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Why is the earth even in the universe, and how is it orbiting the sun, and how does this all work? He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He's talking about even pre-flood, you had this covering over the earth, then you have the flood, and now you have this cloud cover. How does all this work? Why did it work that way then, this way now? He covers the face of the full moon. He spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. And so God has done all this in creation, and we don't understand it. There's all these things that are dark and confusing to us about how the world even works. So Bildad has said God is the God of order of the created world. This is the way it works. God is a God of order. He is a God of order. But Job's saying, but there's lots that's very confusing to us. And there's lots that doesn't make sense to us. And there's lots that frankly seems to defy order. It seems to work outside of this tight little system that you have devised and that you think the way it works. There are things that have no real explanation to us. Why do the oceans stop where they do? Why do the clouds hang over the earth? Why does the earth float in this expanse of the universe? How in the world does all this happen? Oh, this quote by Dr. Caleb Scharf, he says, nothing... For me, nothing compares the perspective, the shock, or the excitement of being reminded of what we don't know. We might be tempted to look back at this, and we might be tempted to say, oh, well, we do understand some of these things. We, we understand why the earth hangs the way it does. It's because of gravity. I love this quote from NASA. However, if we're to be honest, we do not know what gravity is. In any fundamental way, we only know how it behaves. We don't, even, we don't really understand or know. Now, theologically, we know when you die, you either go straight to hell or you go straight to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But what that actual experience is like, what that moment is like, we don't know. 
We don't. Job and his friends knew far less. We don't know. Don't run to your local Christian bookstore and buy five minutes in, in, in death or five minutes in heaven or I went here, I went there. I love what Jesus said in the Gospels when, when the, he's telling this parable and they said, well, send someone back to tell my brothers from the dead so they'll believe. And Jesus says, even if one rose from the dead, they're not going to believe. In other words, if you buy into this concept, oh, there's all these people that this is what God's plan has been. He has them die and either go to heaven or hell and sends them back to tell us all so we'll all believe. They are directly disagreeing with the way Jesus said this was going to work. We don't know some of that. So we know theologically, we understand that biblically, there's really no question, heaven or hell, you die, it's done. It's not that you just rot in the ground. It's not that you're asleep till some other future day. We know, we understand this. But we, there's so much about the actual process we don't know and we don't understand. Even to this day, thousands of years later, he talks about hanging the, the earth in the universe. We scientists to this day don't get it. So we have a term for it, gravity. Gravitational pull, that's the way it works. What is it? Uh, we really don't know. They go on and list lots, lots of other things. Dr. Caleb Scharf lists things like this. Why the universe even exists. What dark matter is or what it does. Is there life anywhere else? Dr. Scharf actually is one of those that believes we must be surrounded by constantly by aliens. We simply haven't identified them yet. I know that causes doctrine into disrepute. Just hang on. How the earth works itself. Scientists point out that we've never gone more than a few miles below the surface of the earth. And until the middle of the 20th century, we didn't even understand that the earth is covered in these tectonic plates that are constantly shifting and moving. We didn't even know this. There's so much we still don't understand. If we don't know, and how does the system work? And we know that God is a God of order. What Job is telling Bildad is God is also a God over confusing things. And he's over things that you and I can't explain, that we can't fully reason out, and we're not going to be able to. Why does that matter so much to someone like Job? Why does it matter that God even has his power over the confusing things of life? Because what Job is saying is God is even powerful over confusing things like puzzling pain, like suffering you don't deserve, like suffering that no one can really explain. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the innocent suffer? Why is Job specifically suffering in an unrighteous way? Listen now, it is not to teach Job a lesson. It's not because God looked down at Job and said, oh, here's some serious areas of sanctification that Job needs, and the best way to do that is trials and pain. We know that sometimes God brings trials into our life for that specific reason, to make our faith as gold, to prove that it's real, to strengthen it to forge it like steel. We know that. We know that there's some pain we receive because of we've sinned. We get that. That's why he says in Hebrews 12, it's discipline and chastening. It's, it's suffering, chastening is suffering for things we've done wrong. Discipline is teaching us and training us. We know even in Corinthians that some were sick and some even died because they were receiving communion wrongly. Those were believers. But not everything we suffer we've earned or deserved. Or is intended to teach us some deep lesson. I believe when you're comforting and dealing with someone hurting, 
there becomes an appropriate moment, and there can be appropriate moments to ask this question, what is God teaching you through this? I think that that is an appropriate question at the right time, at the right place. But I will tell you this, if you looked at that to someone who's suffering puzzling pain, and if that's one of your first questions, I'm going to caution you. I'm going to pump the brakes. I'm going to hit the ABS brakes on you because I'm going to tell you that can add to pain because what that subtly communicates is you deserve this. And if you said that to Job, his answer would have been like, I don't know. And as hard as this is to realize, God would agree with Job in that moment, not you. Because repeatedly, what does God say about him? Look at him. He has integrity. He didn't deserve this. If we don't have a category as Christians for suffering confusing pain, that's an us theology problem not a them problem. And so Job's arguing, even in creation, yes, God is a God of order. He's over order. He shows his power through orderliness. But God is also a God over confusing things that we do not understand. So he goes on from that then, and he goes to maybe the most confusing thing, evil. Verse 11, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Sorry, you should go down through 13. The last one would be verse 14. It's wrong in the slide. Here, Job turns to the summary of Bildad's argument. With a powerful God and a powerful system, what about evil? Bildad would say that it's punished immediately, just like Eliphaz and Zophar have. When evil happens, God is on it, man. Right? You ever been driving? You've been like, where's a cop when you need one? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar would say, man, God is, is, is Detective or Friday, or he's Columbo. He's on the scene, right? He's chips. He's, he, he's right there. When something bad happens, God's there, and he deals with it. That, that's what they would argue about evil, even though Job has already argued that's obviously not true. Not that God doesn't see it, not that God's not powerful, but we live in a world that the wicked don't always get punished and they don't always suffer the way they're supposed to. We just do. Job knows it's not that clean. It's not that crisp. Job argues that God sometimes steps into the system and seemingly breaks the system to overthrow the evil and chaos of this world. Now, what I mean by that is, is this. With this tight system, do good, get good, do bad, get bad, then what God must do is bless those doing good quickly, immediately, and, and punish those who do bad quickly, immediately. And that's just the way the system works. And so, again, it actually has much more in common with karma and a yin-yang system. Yin-yang, you guys understand what I mean by that? That's the whole circle. You've got white on one side with a black in the middle, black on the other side with a white dot in the middle of it. It's a concept for there to be good. There must also be evil. You can't tell whether there's sun without the shadow. It's this kind of philosophical, teleological argument about why there must be the presence of evil, even though we know there's going to come a day when there is no more evil. And so Christianity really stands opposed and outside of that. And so what his friends are arguing is that's the way the system must exist. And Job looks at it and he goes, but is there ever a moment where God steps into the system, interrupts the system, and goes full bore against evil? Does that ever happen? Is it ever going to happen? 
And so if God can have power not just over order, over the system that we're living in right now, but defy the system at time, sometimes so the righteous suffer, will he also sometimes interrupt the system to overwhelm the wicked? That's the argument that he's making. Why would he make that argument? Because it's his only hope. That's it. Job has never believed that he's perfect. He said he's righteous, he's blameless in this regard. God said he was righteous and blameless in all of this. And so unless God is willing to step into the system and destroy the evil that afflicts you and I and all of humanity, there's no hope. There's no hope for the one suffering undeserved pain unless God sometimes will break the back of evil and rescue them from their pain. And so Job uses some ancient poetry here to make his point. The pillars of heaven shaking is a reference to the structure of the earth itself. God in his power shaking the entire earth and causing massive change. Now they all know that this happened specifically in the flood. God literally interrupted the system, changed the system, uh, in, in, inserted himself into the system to flood the earth and literally to wash it of evil. That's what he did. And so Job's saying, this was God acting for his own glory, using his own power. At the same time, though, he turns around and he stilled the sea. And he calms the waters. He makes them to recede and they go back with a promise that God will never again flood the earth in this way. It immediately brings to our minds Jesus on the storm-tossed sea with his disciples when he speaks and the sea is like glass instantaneous. Where he interrupts the system to overcome. But God is not limited to dealing with the whole earth. And so Job brings up this creature that he's mentioned before. He calls it Rahab here. When we think of incarnations of evil or evil personified, we might think of guys like Stalin or Hitler or Pol Pot or Osama bin Laden. Maybe you think of some more modern day criminals and evil people. There's a series on Netflix about murderers and them talking about their crimes on death row. I was watching one of a guy this week back in the late 80s. His father was an attorney and so he's raised in a very law-bound system, but as he describes it, his upbringing was very much more like his dad and his mom treated him with indifference. He was more like a piece of furniture than he was a child. He, his brothers reacted, responded to that well and went on to have pretty profitable lives. Not this guy. Uh, he turned to alcohol. He was, he was difficult to manage. He was drinking as young as eight and nine. Um, and so his parents sent him away to a boarding school, which things only went from bad to worse, turned from um, drinking alcohol to to using marijuana, to using pills, heroin, uh, amphetamines, whatever he get his hands on. So by the time he was in his mid-20s, he's married, has a couple of kids, and he is robbing pharmacies at night to support his habit than selling the stuff. But as a user, he was using more than he was stealing than he was selling, so he decided he needed to up his game. He takes a pistol, and he goes and he robs a pharmacy at gunpoint. Robs the pharmacy at gunpoint, starts to flee, cops are chasing him runs into another little store, shoots at the store owner, and grabs the store owner's 13-year-old son, take him as a hostage. Starts negotiating with the police, saying, if you'll um, get me a plane to get out of here, then I won't hurt the boy. 
it was over the process of a couple of hours, they contact a man who had joined the military and had actually flown combat missions, get this, at the end of World War II, Korea and Vietnam. This dude was a stud. He's also a pilot, so they said, well, you pilot. He goes, absolutely, I'll do this. Let me, let me go, and I'll trade my life for the boys. So he does that, and, and so they get to the airport. Here's the pilot. He's got this little Cessna plane. The criminal trades the 13-year-old boy for the pilot. Police don't intervene. He's sitting in the plane with this pilot. The pilot's taking his time to start the plane while deputies are underneath the plane letting the air out of the tires and getting a sniper into position. Sniper gets about 50 yards away. And the guy leaned, the criminal leaned out the window of the plane trying to negotiate, and the sniper took a shot, hit him right in the chest. He didn't die. Wasn't even unconscious. In a matter of about five seconds, takes his pistol, puts it to the head of this pilot, and shoots him, kills him instantaneously. Climbs out of the plane, bleeding. The police officer ran up and shot him in the back of the head. Still didn't kill him. He pled guilty, avoided trial, was sentenced to death twice. For kidnapping the 13-year-old, for killing the pilot. It's 37 years ago now, he's still in prison. Because a few years into prison, he claimed that he found Christ, talked to the governor, and the governor community sentenced to life without parole. Robbed a family of a heroic dad, permanently scarred a little boy, yet now he lives. And today he actually admits he's more like a sociopath. He can't work up tears, sorrow. It's not really remorseful. It's difficult to read. You hope that he is. You hope that he's actually saved. Who knows? When we think of evil, and it's evil, right? And so we think of evil actions. We think of evil things. We think of evil people. And so when we think of evil personified, we go to extremes. And, and so we say, well, that guy, man, he did an evil thing. He's changed his life since then. He goes and speaks to high school groups, you hope that he's actually changed. You, ho you really hope this man has gotten saved and he gets it. You, you really don't know. These guys, you look at them and you're like, yeah, they never got it. So when we think of evil personified, what Job goes to, though, is this uh, ancient Near East figure, the Leviathan. Rahab is like the, the personal name for this creature. Rahab means destruction here. It's, it's not the Rahab that we think of the Bible. The Hebrew word literally means agitated or boisterous. It's used to refer to this great sea monster in Psalm 89. You rule, talking to God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab or you crushed agitation. You, you crushed evil personified like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Later, when he's prophesying about Israel's restoration or redemption, he says, in that day, the Lord with his hand hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. They're using poetry to capture the idea of not just God destroying Satan, but evil itself. All that's wicked will be destroyed and killed. Job is saying that God's power will bring an overcoming of all that is evil. But to do that, God's going to have to interrupt the system. There's no more evil and good. There will come a day when there's no more evil at all. And God's people to that say, Amen! A murder occurs every few minutes in the United States. Every three minutes there's a rape. Every two minutes there's domestic violence. How do we wrap our brains around that? God, come destroy the evil. 
Interrupt the system. Break the system. I love that he's a God of order. And I also love, is what Job is saying, that he will, he will seem to bring an end to this order that we see and we can't even wrap our mind around. He moves on from that, though, to the last verse. It's actually verse 14. He says this, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? If God can do this on a cosmic scale, if God can do this on a universe level scale, if God can do this on a global scale where he comes and destroys evil personified, this is what Job said, can't God do that for me? Job is saying something so beautiful. All this power of God to overthrow the evil of this world on a grand scale is a whisper compared to the thunder of his power. If this is a whisper, if God coming like a conquering king and breaking the back of Satan and evil, if God coming and destroying all this evil, if God coming and cleansing the earth of all the evil, if that's a whisper, what is thunder? Well, Bill, he's answering Bildad's question. How can a man be right with God? Nothing would thunder louder than a display of God's power making sinful men righteous. And so what God does is he interrupts the system. When we look at the power of Christ in his life, we see his power displayed, and we think theologically, categorically, right? So he, th he displays his power over nature. So think of miracles you're aware of, um, and you, you may be here this morning not as familiar with the New Testament, the stories of Jesus. So I'll list some of them. But, but those of you that are, you can start to think of his miracles. I mentioned one earlier, him, him calming the sea, right? And it's power over nature itself. Or there's another time they get in the boat and like immediately the, the disciples have been rowing. They haven't been getting anywhere. They've been rowing into the wind. They're not making any progress. Jesus gets into the boat, walks on the water, power over nature, gets in the boat and immediately they're on the other side. It's like he bends time and space. It's like a wormhole at Sea of Galilee to bring them to the other side. It's power over nature. When he breaks the bread and, and he disseminates the fish and suddenly a few loaves and a few fish can feed 5,000 men, not to mention women and children. So we don't know, 10, 15,000, maybe 20,000 thousand people he's he's interrupting the system over nature power over nature so we think categorically power over nature we think pa categorically power over satanic forces or demons he he casts demons out of them he commands them to be silent takes them out of one guy puts them into a a i don't know if they're, they're probably not called a flock of, of pigs i don't know the right term for the right i know crows is a murder that just seems creepy a murder of crows but a whole group of pigs they run off the cliff and they die they they beg him don't send us to hell yet he he has power over demons so he has power over nature, he has power over spiritual things, he has power over physical things. He makes the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. He has all this power, and any time when we think about miracles, what it is, a miracle is God interrupting the natural order of the world to put his power on display. He raises the son of a widow, a little girl, and Lazarus, not to mention himself from the dead. All of these displays of power are intended to prove his identity. They're intended to prove that he is God himself in the flesh, truly God, truly man. This is who he is. And the miracles prove it. If any of them happened today, they would be immediately viral. Everybody would know about it. And yet they transform the world. His life and his ministry transform the world. Our world is identifiably, demonstrably, historically different because Jesus Christ 
Son of the living God walked this earth and did his ministry. Thousands of years later, we continue to feel and experience his impact. And so he interrupted the system, but there's also thunderous power. Job is not looking at this point. Listen now, his friends think what Job wants is his kids back, his health back, his wife back, his respect back, his money back. No, this is what Job wants to know. And here now, this is what people in puzzling pain want to know. Does God love me? Because it feels like he doesn't. And so you can see the added cut for his friends to tell him, it's not about love, Job. It's not personal, it's business. Job is not looking for physical rescue now. He's looking for spiritual rescue. Remember that passage that Darren read? Getting into the boat, he crossed over, came to his own city. Matthew 9, he says, Behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The scribes begin to argue, right? They're, they're, they're mad about this. Who can say that this man, you can forgive sins. He's blaspheming, but Jesus, verse 4, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? I find it interesting that the whole name it and claim it movement, right, the whole um, God's given me a word, somebody here has whatever, come down here, they pray, they hit him in the head, they fall out, they, you know. There's been so many, so many investigative reports just showing how fake this is. But people still flock because they crave physical healing. And I get the craving. I, I want to be clear here. I get the craving. My grandfather was captivated by these things. He, he had asbestosis, had lost most of the use of his lungs. He uh, struggled with kidney stones his whole life. So he had these chronic pain issues, couldn't breathe right, was on oxygen. Uh, and he lost his hearing was the hardest thing for him. And he, and this is how dated this is. Some of you don't even know this guy. Is. Ernest Angley was one of the first faith healers. My grandfather bought in hook, line, and sinker. And I remember him just praying, and he would email, or not email, so write letters, I guess, to this guy. He paid money for him to send him an anointed hand, handkerchief back that my grandfather slept with. It's sad. I, can you use the word hate sermon? I'm allowed to do that. Some people are going to be, oh, you should never hate anybody. Man, I hate false teaching. I hate it. Because I don't think you can love right teaching and not hate false teaching. I'm not saying I hate these people, but the funny thing is nobody flocks to them because they say your sins are forgiven. The closest you can come to that is the Catholic Church. Your sins are forgiven. They want healing. And so this whole moment, they don't even get it. Just like Job's friends don't get it. Job's, would Job want to be free from boils? Yes. But the deepest pain of the suffering saint is a feeling like God has somehow rejected you. Jesus says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. I love that moment. Dude gets up, and he goes home. Thunderous. That's thunderous power. That's what that is. When Job says, we've seen the outskirts, um, we, we've heard a whisper, the rise and walk was the whisper, the thunder was your sins are forgiven. What's real rescue? 
I love how Job pictures it as a shaking of the earth. God shakes the pillars of the earth. Job is unwittingly prophesying about the very day that evil is dealt a death blow, isn't he? In Matthew 27, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the Holy, Spirit, Holy City and appeared to many. Job's saying God can shake the earth, and, and what he doesn't even know is the day when God dealt the death blow to sin and Satan and evil, he shook the earth so that no one could mistake it, and he rends the veil so there's nothing that separates us from God any longer through Jesus. I'll give you another one from Bildad. Remember the commentary in verse 6 from Bildad about humanity. Remember he says we're like maggots and worms? There's a foreshadowing of who Satan really is, but it's also foreshadowing of what Jesus became for us. Psalm 22, 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Jesus didn't just shake the world with his power. He was treated as less than a man so he could raise us up to royalty. That is thunder. The first pain he heals is our sin and our broken relationship with him. And this is the deepest cry of Job. God, please love me. God will literally move physically and spiritually heaven and earth just to prove to you that he loves you. The flood was a whisper. Earthquakes are a whisper. Defeating the serpent is a whisper. The thunder is God's power to rescue sinners. And friends, if God can raise the dead, he can heal our pain the truth is if god's power can shake the world it can rescue me from my suffering i would simply ask this which is easier which is easier whatever pain is afflicting you that is puzzling however it's manifesting like i said physically emotionally relationally financially what's easier for god to take away those or to make you right with him. You see, I think Job is coming to a place where he is just honed in and the only suffering or the suffering that he cares the most about is to simply know God has rescued him and he loves him. This is the ministry that those in puzzling pain need. This is the truth that calms the troubled soul. This is the truth that heals the brokenhearted. God has not abandoned you. The God of all power has done the most powerful thing that ever could happen. He's taken a sinner like you and made you right with him. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know him, and by that I mean not that you know about him, but that you have not turned from your sin, put your faith in Christ and submitted to him, I want you to know that is the thunder of the power of God in your life to bring you to a point of seeing who you are, where you're headed, and to embrace his rescue. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer, I want to encourage you to meditate there, to soak there, to marinate in the truth that God has literally shaken heaven and earth to make you his own. Father, I thank you for the confirmation of your love and your affection and your tenderness to us. I pray that you would help us as we minister truth to our own hearts, but also as we minister truth to others that are suffering 